The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hey guys, I just wanted to let you know that this podcast is presented by mybookie.ag and that if you use the promo code MATTEK, M-A-T-T-E-K, that you will get a 50% deposit bonus on your first deposit. And given that you are a listener to this podcast, I would assume you're relatively knowledgeable about sports and I would trust you to try your edge on the online sports book. You can lay down some money and get in on the action at one of the safest online sports books in the world. It's the only one that I am currently using. You can wager on all sorts of different outcomes on mybookie.ag, soccer, football, any major league, esports. You can even create your own player props, which is useful for me because if you know anything about me, I do enjoy uh, a good player prop. So if you deposit using the promo code MATTEK, M-A-T-T-E-K, you get a you get a 50% de- bonus when you deposit and i will add this for listeners of the takecast if you deposit using the promo code matic and you send proof of it to me on twitter i will follow you on twitter and you can have access to me via dms whenever you want that's the that's the takecast bonus that i'm adding in association with the mybookie.ag deposit bonus now let's get back to the show Hello everyone and welcome to the Tatecast. My name is Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. This episode is done with my old friend Derek Cardi, currently at Roto Grinders, but he was my associate at FantasyInsiders.com. In this episode, we get into how Derek goes about projecting things in DFS, whether it be baseball or football. We talk about some of the math behind the bat and the blitz, talk about his journey transitioning from season-long baseball to daily fantasy football and all of the stops in between. I think if you're a very serious DFS player, you will have a lot to learn from how Derek breaks things down. And if you're a more casual fantasy player, I think it's a pretty interesting insight into the data science that goes into our world. Of course, if you want to support the show, you can leave a like or rating on iTunes. That's, uh, you know, very helpful. Always a five-star review. I can't uh, I can't turn those down. And if you really like the show, you are, of course, going to be able to subscribe to it on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash TakeCast for $5 a month. You get access to bonus episodes, showdown-specific slates, and uh, hopefully we are going to be launching a Discord soon when we get uh, you know to an appropriate number of patrons. Uh, working on that for you guys, and uh, after a quick ad, we will get into the show. Daily Roto is a mostly proud sponsor of the TakeCast, a mostly sports podcast. TakeCast listeners can save 10% at Daily Roto with the promo code Janis, J-A-N-I-S. If you are playing on DraftKings or FanDuel, Daily Roto will help you improve your daily fantasy results this fall and save time in the process with lineup optimizers, ownership projections, fantasy projections, premium content, and much more. They have all the good stuff that you want to help you make money at sports betting and daily fantasy. Their new lineup optimizer will let you build optimal GPP teams with stacks based on their projections, faster 
sure that I can punt money off betting on Peter Uline. Sure, you can play the guys that I recommend each week, but shouldn't you also get advice from a proven daily fantasy winner like Drew Dinkmeyer? Yes, I do have better hair than Drew, but I also have his cell phone number, and that makes me a winner almost as much as it makes him a winner of the DraftKings Millionaire Maker. And it's not just fantasy. They have tools to bet on player props, golf matchups, and a customizable NFL game simulator for this fall. Save 10% with promo code Janice today. All right, everyone would like to welcome my old friend, Derek Carty, to the show. He is now uh, the proprietor of The Bat and The Blitz on Roto-Grinders, which you can buy by uh, an additional add-on with your Roto-Grinders subscription. But uh, we are former co-workers at Fantasy Insiders, where the, uh, the bat was originally put on display. But Derek, I don't know how many people kind of in the DFS space actually know just how long that you've been working in fantasy. And I kind of want you to talk about your journey through all of the different outlets that you've worked at. Yeah, absolutely. First, thanks for having me on. I'm very excited. Um, and yeah, so I've been doing fantasy, I guess, for probably over 10 years now, if I were to guess. Um, I was, you know, a season-long guy before DFS was even a thing. You know, I played in a, you know, a, a home league with my high school friends, and I was terrible. I, I sucked, and I lost every year. And I was like, why do I keep sucking? Why do I keep losing at fantasy sports every year? And my one friend, I saw him one day reading this book called Moneyball, and I was like, well, well, what is this? And he's like, well, this is why I always win. And so that kind of turned me on to like the whole sports and math thing works together. And so I read Moneyball. You know, I started doing a bunch of research, reading, you know, all the, the sabermetric sites at the time. Um, I started up like a little blog on Blogger. Um, yeah. And <laughs> like when, like get what year is this? So people have a frame of reference. This was probably like 2006, okay. guess, 2007, somewhere around there. Um, so I started off this little blogger blog, you know, writing about, you know, my sabermetric thoughts on things. And within like a month, the hardball times comes to me and is like, you know, we want to start a fantasy section. We've been reading your stuff. We want you to come and start it for us. And, uh, if you're not familiar with the hardball times, like they were my favorite site at the time, they were phenomenal. They're a part of Fangraphs right now. They're basically like the nerdier branch of Fangraphs. It's like where like more of like the in-depth statistical studies and stuff gets done, you know, yeah. on the Fangraph side. Um, so I thought that was phenomenal. So I joined hardball times and I had a great time there. Um, after, you know, a couple of years, I moved over to baseball prospectus, which is still, you know, like kind of the, the pinnacle of, you know, sabermetric, you know, internet stuff. Um, and I was really fortunate to work with just like a ton of smart people, guys who just knew their shit. And a lot of these guys now they're, they're working for major league teams, like half the Astros front office I worked with you know, at, at THT and baseball prospectus. So like I learned a lot of really cool things. And uh, after baseball prospectus, I kind of took some of those things and started uh, applying them on the DFS side. So how, uh, I guess, how did you learn the requisite math skills to do all of this? Cause I think that, uh, I think that that is a, a pretty interesting thing. I think a lot of people in DFS are self-taught in terms of like what they know about building models and, uh, you know, nonlinear equations and all the stuff that goes into projecting future performance. So what was like your journey in, in math learning, you know, I, what do you use for the blitz and bat like R or Python? 
I don't actually. Um, I do it probably a little more inefficiently than I probably should. Like I'd love to learn R or Python, but I just haven't had the time to do it because I'm always so busy with other things. I've always been really great at math. Like in school, I always got straight A's and took, you know, honors and AP. And in college, I took all the advanced math and stats classes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I am largely self-taught, you know, learning from a lot of the people that I worked with and learning just from when I needed to know something, going and researching it and, and learning it. Um, but, uh, but I use a, a SQL actually to, to build the bat and the blitz, which is basically like a database language. Yeah. Um, and it's just, I have scores and scores of text files with SQL code that, that runs the system, you know, like a gig's worth of text files that runs these two systems. And, uh, and yeah, that, that's how they run. So how influential was the book in kind of your career and the math? Because when I was first really learning about Daily Fantasy and MLB Daily Fantasy in particular, uh, the book, which is by um, Tom Tango and Mitchell Littman, uh, and if you guys are playing Daily Fantasy a lot and are interested into how projections work, I would recommend that as a read, even if you don't care about baseball, because it gets you into thinking about how what actually goes into making good projections. So I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about the book and how that inspires, you know, what goes into the bat and the blitz. Yeah, so the, the book is great. Like if you guys haven't read the book and you're into this stuff at all, like go out and read it. Even if you don't care about the heavy math portions of it, which there is plenty of, mm -hmm. just the concepts and the way they talk about things and approach things and think about things is such a good way of kind of forming your own mindsets. Like kind of challenging conventional wisdom and finding, you know, the right way of looking at things and, you know, thinking about, okay, is there some kind of selection bias going on here? Is there some kind of effect that is skewing the actual numbers? Um, you know, and, and the actual effect is different than what the raw numbers say it is. Because so many players, you know, DFS players, they'll go out there and they'll, they'll look at the raw numbers and they'll say, okay, well, this guy's, you know, day night splits or home road splits say this. So, he must be, you know, this good in the daytime and this good at nighttime without considering like the variance, whether that split even matters, like whether there's confounding factors or whether there's, you know, anything. And, and the book is really great at, at kind of putting you in the right mindset and the right way of thinking about those things. And they run the numbers on a lot of those things themselves. And, and a lot of things like that, you know, basically all splits they find are pretty much useless except for uh, platoon splits, you know, versus right or versus left splits. Um, but even those are a lot noisier than people think they are. And they run you through the full math of how you account for the noise. And so the bat uses the exact math from the book, basically, to account for its platoon splits. Which is definitely an unconventional way of doing things. Like the book calls for like massive, massive sample sizes. Like, like a, a basic conjecture of the book is that like, for, for someone's true platoon split to be known, like most guys will never get the amount of plate appearances in their career to like actually know what a, a person's real left versus right splits actually are. Yeah. For a right-handed batter, I think the book says it takes about 10 years worth of plate appearances until you just get to the point where assuming that the player is league average is not better than looking at the player's actual stats, which is just crazy. Like when you tell people it takes 10 years for a player's splits to stabilize, they're like, no, that's stupid. Wilmer Flores and Adam Rosales are lefty mashers. They have to be. And it's just not true. Right. So how much of like the new kind of like stat tracking data for baseball is kind of changing 
how you project baseball, like, uh, like exit velocity, launch angle, like these things were not around when the book was written and when projecting for baseball really kind of became in vogue. Like, I think probably like eight years ago, the Moneyball thing, zips got really big, steamer is really big. And as far as I know, none of those metrics take into account this new data that we have. So like, expected WOBA and things like that? Like how much are you looking at that? Do you think the math behind those numbers is good? Like kind of, kind of break me through like the last like two years of MLB stuff. Yeah. So there's been, there's been a lot of stuff, you know, starting about, I don't know, probably 10 years ago now, pitch FX came out, which was awesome. Um, and then about two years ago, you know, StatCast came out, which basically built on that and has all kinds of new stuff. Um, and I think a lot of it is really cool. I think some of it, though, fantasy players can kind of get get too bogged down in and can kind of overrate a little bit because a lot of these things, and, and it's changing now, like it has been a couple of years, but a lot of these things, like there hasn't been a lot of tests done on them, you know, right. how stable they are, how predictive they are. People just kind of assume that because they're new and shiny that they must be predictive and the new best way to do things. And that's not always the case. Like I'm, I have worked with the data a little bit. I have incorporated some of it. Um, as much as I can into what I do. Um, but I've also kind of found with some of it that like, it's not that predictive. Like people will talk about spin rates, a big one right now. Like people love talking about spin rates on different pitchers pitches, you know, the spin rate on this guy's curveball is phenomenal or the spin rate on this guy's slider is great. So it must be a great slider and spin rate for most pitches, at least the current publicly available version of spin rate for yeah. most pitches doesn't actually add any predictive value at all. It's great for fastballs. Basically, it doesn't matter for sliders. Basically, it doesn't matter for curveballs. If you can break it up into the transverse and gyro components, you can add a little bit of value to it. But like things like velocity, you know, just straight up normal velocity that we've had since PitchFX came out in like 2006 is more important for a pitch like a slider or a curveball than, than spin rate is, like infinitely more valuable. And, and I think people kind of, you know, they see these new things and they think they're great. And yeah, they are. They're awesome. But like, I think it's important also to kind of take a step back and analyze it before you start just using it willy nilly without really knowing what it is. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's, that's good advice for DFS in general, in terms of predicting performance. Something that I think is pretty interesting about how you go about things is a lot of your projections, unless I'm wrong, are kind of about determining a true talent level instead of just predicting a performance based on one day. So kind of what, and, and I actually am more interested in this for NFL than baseball because uh, I just, I care so much more about football than baseball. So kind of what goes into predicting a player's true talent level in the blitz? Like how are you, how are you determining talent level for quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a really great question. So like, when I predict what a player is going to do in a given week, you know, this week the Cowboys are facing the Eagles, you know, whatever Ezekiel Elliott's going to do. Before you can predict what he's going to do against the Eagles, you have to predict how good he actually is in a neutral context. And so all, all, a big part of what my systems do is they look at all the past situations that a player has been in, whether it's a baseball player or a football player, and it looks at all those different contextual situations and it says, based on these, you know, contextual situations either this player you know kind of had it easy or he had it rough and he's probably a little bit better or a little bit worse than his actual numbers say he is you know for for baseball it's you know park factors and umpires and catchers and defense and weather for football it's you know 
game script and down and distance and field position and, you know, opposing defense and home field advantage and like all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, one of the big components of my system that I, one of the things that I think really sets it apart is that it accounts for all these things in kind of a backwards fashion to first arrive at what the player's actual talent level is in a neutral context. And then you can project him in the context of, you know, this current week. So how are you ranking these guys? Is it based off like for quarterbacks? Is it like yards per attempt in a neutral context situation for running backs? Is it success rate? Like what, uh, what's like the final column that these guys end up being organized by? So yeah, like a lot of fantasy players, they think about things in terms of, you know, like the final column, like his Woba or his yards per attempt. Right. Right. I tend to think about things more in like a component way. So like for a quarterback, like, yeah, I guess the final number kind of is like yards per attempt or whatever, but I don't project his yards per attempt on its own. I project the components of it. I project how often he's getting sacked, how often he's throwing the ball away, how often he's completing passes, his depth of his passes, his yards per pass, all that kind of stuff. And then each of those factors has their own level of variance to it. Like some of those things are more stable than other things. Some of them are, you know, very, very, you know, random, like interceptions, you know, at, People hate it when I say it, but like, oh yeah, yeah. Here, here's your here's your chance, Derek. You have you have the floor to to end the debate on why interceptions are random because this is I I can say I I disagree from like an intuitive sense of just like watching a lot of football, but mathematically it very easily could be true. Yeah, so like I'm not trying to end the debate or say like that this is absolutely definitively the only way to think about this. But like mathematically, if all you have is interception rate, it is a very noisy stat. It's not completely random, but it's very noisy. It takes several years for it to stabilize for a quarterback. Now, if you have other information about the quarterback, you can make better guesses as to his actual interception ability, you know if he's a good quarterback in general, if his more stable stats and his completion percentage and his yards per attempt and whatever else are really good, we can probably project his interception rate to be a little bit better also. And then if we have, you know, different charting data, you know, things like, you know, just general bad decisions or that kind of thing, if we're charting that, I would imagine that would really help us project interceptions. But if all we have is just straight up interception rate, it's very noisy. It just mathematically is. And it's, noisy by the same math that tells us things that are already like established like firmly believed by lots of people like the same math that tells us that pitcher Babbitt is super super noisy is the same math that's telling us this about quarterback interceptions and so like it's just it's what it's what the math says so I think the difference is in pitcher Babbitt there's only two inputs right it's it's the pitcher and how the batter does against them but there are there are like a lot more inputs that you can look at for a quarterback than just interception rate to determine maybe not his future interception rate, but maybe his future number of like interceptable passes or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and like something like that, like interceptable passes, I would imagine is a lot more stable than actual interceptions because part of the reason interceptions are noisy is because there's so much that can happen. Even if a quarterback throws an interceptable pass, you know, the defense doesn't necessarily catch it. Like defensive backs don't have very good hands. Like sometimes interceptions are made because, you know, it bounces off the wide receiver's hands or, you know, there's all kinds of things, you know? And so, you know, people look at, you know, well, oh my God, Jameis Winston just threw that ball right to the defender and he caught it. How is that random? Obviously that exact interception is not random. Like it was a bad pass. 
the defender caught the ball. Um, but like the defender's not a lot to catch that ball. Sometimes he doesn't. And so that can kind of be unbalanced between quarterbacks sometimes and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So you, you actually made the leap from projecting things from a seasonal perspective to a DFS perspective. What, what's more difficult to project a guy out over the season or for like, you know, a single slate of games? So it's almost like they're different beasts. Like I, I prefer projecting DFS. That's why I kind of switched over to the DFS side because I think it's a little more challenging and it's more fun and there's more things to care about. Like there's, there's way bigger reward in being good at projecting DFS than in season long too. Like the, the, the payoff for being the absolute best projector for MLB. Like what, I mean, I don't even know how many, how many NFBC teams would you even have to enter and how many would you have to win to like make the adequate payoff for being the absolute best season long MLB projector guy? I have no idea, but it there it's kind of funny because like we complain all the time in DFS about variants. Like, oh my god, I got hit by such bad variants. You know, I rostered Chris Sale tonight and he got shelled and he was only 20% owned and I just lost all my money. And like, yeah, that sucks. But variance in season long is so much worse. Like in season long, yeah, if Chris Sale gets shelled of a night, whatever, you lose that night, you get to play the next day. If you roster Clayton Kershaw and he gets hurt, you know, in May and is out for three months, like you're done. Good luck. Come back next March and try again. Like season long variance sucks. And so like it's harder. And a lot of it with season long projecting season long is like playing time is so important and playing time is so hard to project, especially when it comes to injuries because injuries, you know, for the most part are super random. So it's like, you know, it's just, it's hard. So DFS, even though it has that day-to-day variance, especially in a sport like baseball, um, it's actually kind of easier to project, I guess, in a way, and a little bit more stable as, as almost counterintuitive as that sounds. So what was the transition from like paying attention to things season long, projecting season long, waiver moves, all of that stuff? What was that transition like? For you, because I always think this is interesting to people who were really into seasonal fantasy, how they like began to approach DFS. I I just find that transition to be generally interesting because I I played like a little bit of seasonal fantasy, like I played in like probably like two or three season long football leagues a year, but I didn't start taking fantasy super seriously until I got into DFS. So I actually kind like I'm I'm definitely DFS first seasonal second so I think it's always interesting to hear how people who were seasonal first DFS second like really got into it yeah so so I used to be seasonal first DFS second now now I'm reverse but right I was seasonal first because I was doing it before DFS was a thing um so I still play seasonal like I still play in labor and tout wars which are the two big MLB expert leagues um but I don't play like uh, a home league anymore like I, I really just like DFS better. And I guess my transition was a little bit different than most people's because the reason I kind of got into it was because I thought it was a more rigorous mathematical challenge, honestly. And that's part of what drew me to it. Like in season long, you don't care about umpires for baseball. You don't care about, you know, the exact batting order for a given day. And in DFS, these things are super important. And so it was projecting a whole new subset of things. And to me, that, that really appealed to me, um, in addition to some other things. But, I mean, that was kind of the main driver for me. 
Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that that kind of is at the heart of all of this is just the, the reward in DFS for being good at it is so much greater. And I think that's why people are so passionate about like, you know, very small things in projecting players. Like people get very passionate about, you know, interception rate or, or you know, how, how important are left, right splits. Like I, and I think a, a big challenge for people who view things in a more analytical sense, and I would, I would like for you to speak to this, is trying to quantify or wrap your head around things that people insist matter and matter for predicting outcomes, but that it's hard to find a statistical significance for. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm trying to think of like a good example. If you have one, let me know. But like, uh, well, I mean, just like from, from the very far end, like there's the, there's the examples of like, uh, like when Steve Smith was playing for the Ravens and then went to go play against the Panthers, there was no, there was no great reason to play him other than, you know, hashtag revenge. And he actually had a really good game and he was, but it's very weird. Like he was owned in cash games despite being like a bad projectable play. So I'm wondering how someone from like your perspective, try like, how does your brain make sense of those things? So I guess every, everything that someone says, I try, I mean, the whole premise of sabermetrics, which is what I come from and what I believe in is the search for truth. And it's just about finding objective truths. It's not about finding data to fit your narrative or trying to like find a way to make the data say what you want it to say. It's about finding what the data actually says, finding what's actually true and using it. And so even if something sounds a little ridiculous at first, I will always put some time into thinking about it and saying, okay, could this be real? Is it something that, you know, based on my experience is worth studying to see if it's real? And if I think it is, I will study it and I'll see if it's real. Um, a lot of things though, at this point, like I will kind of just like, be like, it's not worth my time to look at it. I know based on studying other similar things, you know, and just based on basic common sense in the sabermetric sense, like it's not real, like revenge games, probably not real. At least I kind of, I kind of think that it's real. It's real in basketball, I think. And not because, not because it makes them play better, but in those scenarios, those guys, like players have more control of their usage in basketball. Yep, I was going to say in basketball and maybe even in football because, like, maybe they decide to target the guy more, like, if the coach is buying into the narrative, like, whatever, like, maybe. But, yeah, in basketball or something, I can definitely see it. And it comes down to usage, I think, more than anything else. In a sport like baseball, there, there's really no – there's nothing. Like, there just can't be. Well, yeah, I mean, if guys could just make themselves play better in baseball, they would make themselves play better all the time. Right, exactly. <laughs> Like that's the, that's really about as, that's really about as simple as it gets. Have you, have you done any, you know, thinking or looking into like what it would take for you to build a basketball projection system? Yeah. I don't want to speak too soon, but it's something that I'm definitely thinking about and that uh, it's possible we see next year. I would be, I would be on board for that. I find, I find projecting like basketball seems to be Easy is not the right word, but you have so much good data to work from in basketball. And like a big, a big part of it is projecting minutes. Like minutes become like the, the biggest edge projection that there is for basketball, which I guess is similar to NFL. Like if you have the very best target projections, you're like over the long term, you're very likely to win in NFL. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. And that's what I've heard from everyone who plays basketball that minutes are super important. And that's part of the reason why I haven't really got into it yet. First, because it takes a billion hours to actually build a system like this, but also because like 
after baseball season, I'm kind of tired. And then, and now I'm doing football too, which is a little more leisurely, but like basketball or baseball rather, it's every single day, you don't get a break. And then if you go right into basketball every single day until baseball starts again, it's a lot. And so like paying attention to it every single night and trying to adjust the minutes, like it's a big undertaking. So if I think if I do it, it would have to be like, you know, with someone who could help with that kind of thing. Right. Um, how have you tackled the sample size issue in football? Like that, that's obviously, I mean, guys could play a whole career and not really have a super stable, significant sample size. Like how are you trying to stabilize? Like, how are you trying to stabilize things given the smaller sample sizes in the NFL? Yeah, this is a, a question I get a lot. And one of the things when I first kind of made the transition in the NFL, that people were like, oh my God, why is Cardi going to try to play NFL with the smaller sample sizes? He's just going to, you know, project everyone to be the same or like whatever. And it's not really true. Like there's, I guess, a couple points here that I need to make. So like first, I don't think sample sizes are actually that small in football. Like if you think about how many passes a quarterback throws in a given year, he's going to throw six or 700 passes, which is the same number of at-bats that a batter will take in baseball. Like just because it's 16 games as opposed to 162 games, doesn't necessarily mean it's a smaller sample size. Um, but the more important point, I think, is that sample size is all relative. Like, a small sample size for one stat can be a huge sample size for another stat. Like, if we use, I guess, another baseball example, if we talk about pitcher velocity versus pitcher Babbitt, after, you know, two plate appearances, pitcher velocity is going to be super, super stable. Like it just is. If a guy's throwing 90, he's not all of a sudden going to start throwing 80. Right. But pitcher Babbitt after two plate appearances is complete garbage. It's just, it's all noise and variance and trash. And so even though it's the same two plate appearance sample, because we're looking at different stats, one of them super stable and one of them is not. And so in football, even if we kind of our brains think like, oh, the sample sizes here aren't that big you know, we don't necessarily know that until we actually study the data and we look at each stat and we say, okay, this stat, you know, stabilizes at this sample size. This stat stabilizes at this sample size. And if you look at the football, you know, stats and where they stabilize, they're a little bit noisier than baseball stats, but a lot of them stabilize fairly quickly. Which is, I mean, that's interesting. That's interesting to hear you say that something can stabilize that quick given like just how we, like and football is a weird game. It, there's just so many moving parts. Like uh, something that I talked about uh, with the guys from Stats and Info is, you know, the project that they're working on right now, uh, and this is really the big project in football overall, is trying to assign credit at a play level. Like trying to give 13% of the credit to the left tackle, 10% of the credit to the running back. And like that, that's a massive, massive undertaking because that's, that's the argument that has existed in football since they played it at Harvard versus Yale is who was responsible for this play success. And is that something that you have tried to tackle or something you have any significant thoughts on? It's something I've tried to tackle and something that kind of kept me away from football for a while was like, who is responsible? If you know, quarterback A throws the ball to wide receiver B and he catches the ball, well, who's responsible for that? Was it, you know, a good throw from the quarterback? Was it a good catch from the wide receiver? You know, how much, you know, was the offensive line responsible based on how much they blocked? Or like, how much were the other receivers, you know, responsible because they drew attention away? Or like, whatever. Like, football is such a dynamic game with so many parts that intersect that it is really, really hard to pull them apart. The blitz, 
makes some attempt to do that. I think what it does, it does really well. You know, I think it's doing things better than most systems out there are doing things, but it's absolutely not definitively doing it right. Like, you know, if you are charting it, I guess it sounds like the way these guys are like, I yeah, they, I mean, they are trying to chart it from like a straight play level. Yeah. Like that is phenomenal. I would love to get my hands on that data. I'm not doing it that, um, granularly, I guess is the word. Um, but I am doing it, I think in a pretty decent way. Well, I mean, to do it, to do it on that level, you would have to have, I mean, you have to have a team. You have to have someone yeah, watching have someone watching every single play and, and marking tons of things down on each play. Like I, you probably need more than one person watching every play, honestly, or just like, I don't know how many man hours that would take, but it would be so many. But a, I think lot, a lot of man hours is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that's phenomenal. Like, I would love to be able to see that data. So, I mean, the most important question, do defenses matter? <laughs> yes. Defenses matter. I, I don't even know how it's really a question. Um, Defenses matter, but defenses matter a lot less, I think, than most people assume that they matter. But, like, they, they have to matter. Like, you look at Vegas lines, like, you know, teams are projected for fewer points against what we consider to be better defenses. Teams tend to score fewer points against what we consider to be better defenses. I think that, like, the way we think about defenses and the way we project them um, can be simplistic at times. I think there's better ways to do it. Um, but like defenses do matter. If you look at, you know, where defensive statistics stabilize, they stabilize, you know, not as quickly as offensive statistics do, but certain defensive statistics, completion percentage, sack percentage, stuff like that, they do stabilize in a relative, I don't want to say quick fashion, but like they do stabilize, let's say. Um, and then I think it's kind of, I guess, almost similar to the way I was talking about interceptions before, like even though interceptions themselves are noisy, if we know other things about the quarterback, we can project his interceptions better. So like with defenses, we know that, you know, man coverage is more effective than zone coverage on the whole. So if a team is running more man coverage, we might project them to be a little bit better defense. You know, we can project certain things that, you know, at the player level or, you know, certain, you know, we talked about charting before, like PFF is charting player grades for individual defensive players and stuff like that. Like, I think if we use, um, those types of things and those types of almost like tricks or whatever you want to call it, but like knowing other things about the defense other than just their, you know, yards per attempt or whatever, I think can help us project the defense better than just looking at the raw data. And, and I think that's always the right approach when it comes to projecting things is accounting for as many things as we possibly can, especially things, um, you know, that are a little bit more stable than the thing that we actually want to project. So on a, on as granular level as you can get, how are you projecting defensive matchups out for, uh, you know, for quarterbacks, for running backs, for wide receivers, for tight ends? Are you going as granular as like this team allows 73 yards per game to tight ends? Like that's actually the sort of analysis that I think that Josh rightly points out is bad. I, I think that yeah. that sort of analysis, like I think like the the one area where I do tend to 
it's I'm I bend the knee a little bit to the idea that running backs catch more passes against Atlanta because it does seem like they schematically do something to allow running backs to catch passes. But I I definitely this year a big shift in how I approach things is I'm not like I'm not like looking at like what teams give up to tight ends like that that seems like bad analysis. Yeah, and I think again it depends on how we define what they give up to tight ends. If we're just like okay, they give up this many yards per game to tight ends. I think that's bad because there's so many different components. You know, we talked about it earlier. I think about everything in terms of components. There's so many different components in terms of yards per game. You know, how many total plays is the team running? Of those plays, how many of them are passing plays? You know, of those passing plays, how many are actual targets to tight ends? You know, how often is he dropping the ball? How often is he completing the ball? How many yards is he getting per play? You know, how many yards after the catch is he getting? And all these things have different levels of noise in them. Some of them have tons and tons of noise in them. Um, and so I kind of project, you know, for defenses the same as I do for offenses. I adjust for all the context that the defenses face, which I think is a big part of it. And then um, I project each component individually based on the variance in that component. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a lot better than just looking at, you know, DVOA or yards per game or whatever and saying, this is how good the defense is against tight ends. Yeah. So like, so like Julio Jones against Baltimore last week, I think this is a great example. This is a guy, this is a guy with the, like he has pretty much the best volume that there is in the NFL. Uh, I think Thielen has a little bit more targets per game, but um, Julio crushes him on the air yards, which I think, you know, we both agree is pretty valuable. So talk to me about what goes into projecting. And I, I believe Baltimore is the best, defense at preventing completions in the league like they like the the advanced stuff that goes into that they are the best in terms of expected completion so what goes into projecting someone like Jones in that game so I'll, I'll come right out and say the the blitz was high on Julio Jones this I week. think I, it's totally okay to have been I, I was high on Julio as well like yeah, it, like I, even someone who's not doing things from like a granular level can still be like well his volume is good enough and I don't believe defenses are that important yeah. And so, so that's kind of, you know, what it was like, yeah, the blitz does project and I do project Baltimore's defense to be, to be good, but it's not as good as people think it is like the, the, uh, the difference between a really good defense and a really bad defense is a lot smaller than people think, I guess is what it comes down to. And so even though Baltimore is, you know, one of the best or the best, it's still not as great as people think it is. And so there were so many other things to like about Julio. Like defense is only one part of a matchup. There's so many other things to consider. You know, Julio Jones obviously gets a huge target share, tons of air yards, has one of the best quarterbacks in baseball throw, or in football throwing it to him. He was at home in a dome, no wind. You know, like these are things that make a huge difference. And basically everything except the defense was working in Julio Jones's favor in addition to his too cheap salary for his talent level this week. So like – I like Julio Jones. I think thought he was a great process play and he didn't work out. Yeah, I mean and and that stuff that stuff does happen. On the on the converse, how does the blitz tend to handle guys who are like their baseline projection in terms of their talent level is lower than average at their position, but play Oakland or, you know, Tampa Bay or like, you know, just whatever, whatever the the actual horrible defenses are. This is this is how much I've bought into Josh's uh, bullshit is that I'm just like I don't have a great sense of what defenses are considered actually really bad because that's not a huge part of my weekly research right so like 
the way the blitz or the bat or anything I build takes anything into account is just organically. So like if, you know, whoever this receiver is, wide receiver A is 10% better at catching the ball than league average, and the defense is 5% better at preventing catches than league average, then that gets combined, you know, mathematically, and it just, you know, the math decides what it is. It's not like there's a, a subjective process or subjective weighting that goes into each one. It's just how, how good relative to average every factor is. And I, not that I'm trying to get you to give away the special sauce, but I am assuming that the weights in the bat do weight player talent much more than those individual things, or is it done on a custom basis based it's, on the, the factors that are in play? Yeah, it's, it's kind of done based on each thing. It's not like I'm saying, okay, you know, ballpark is this important and pitcher is this important and batter is this important. I'm saying, you know, the batter is plus 5%, the pitcher is minus 7%, the park is plus 10%. Add them all up. It's, it's more complicated than just adding them all up. But, like, in yeah. essence, add them all up, and, and that's, you know, how good this matchup is and what the player should be projected for. And it's the same for football. You know, home field advantage has this much impact. Domes have this, this much impact. You know, defenses have this much impact. The, the player's talent has this much impact. In a lot of cases, the player's talent – does wind up being more important than something like defense just because there's less variance with offensive players. So you can project a wider spread of talent than you can for defenses. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely a good point. All right. Uh, to close us out here, I think you'll have good perspective on this because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you like you were probably not a giant football fan growing up, right? Like you were you were baseball first, yeah? Yeah, I played basketball growing up. I liked baseball. I followed football, but I wasn't huge into it. So when you like when you are making the transition to like doing football content and like thinking about this game more often, there were probably a lot of like truisms or things that people believed that to you like just seemed like alien, right? Like just like, oh, you need to do this in this situation or you have to run to set up the play action. Like those are like kind of far removed from your experience with the game. Yeah. So like, I mean, a lot of these truisms now, like now that we have, you know, analytics becoming more mainstream, we have actual NFL coaches. There's not a lot of them, but there's a few of them who are actually like using analytics now and doing smart things. And, you know, the broadcasters. This, this last time, week, it was week 13, man, was it was a brutal watch. It, it was. It was. Oh, my God. That Lions game. I almost. Oh, I, I, I only had I only had Galladay. I didn't have Ellington too, and I just I wanted to I wanted to break my TV. Yeah, it was terrible. But we have coaches like McVeigh, like Peterson, like uh, I guess Andy Reid. Maybe I think Peterson. I think Peterson has lost his card. He's he's coached. He's coached like he's in a shell all uh, all week or all year. I guess I haven't really watched a lot of Eagles games this year, but uh, like we do have some coaches like that, and and. I think the, the broadcasters are kind of aware that these coaches are thinking about things on another level and they'll try to talk about it. At least a lot of times they don't do a very good job explaining it or they get it completely wrong. But like these things are becoming a little bit more mainstream, like at least in like smart people circles, like running backs really don't matter. Like rushing the ball is a terribly inefficient way of playing football. Like passing is so much more efficient. Like teams could pass way more than they do, especially in certain situations. Um, and that was part of the reason why the Lions, like, 
Like the Lions, oh my God. Like they just ran the ball in the worst possible situations last week. Like it wasn't even like a, this is a normal bad NFL coaching time to run up, to run the ball. They were running it in like, what sane human being would ever run the ball here? But like rushing is just not that good. Running back talent is very, very, very condensed. Um, And so like running backs don't matter a lot, but like that's becoming, you know, fairly prevalent people are starting to believe this you know defense being less important than people think you know some people like you I guess it seems like are starting to believe this so like these things are starting to turn well no okay so I need to be clear about this I think defense definitely matters for the way that teams perform like win loss like I think defense I think defensive quality in terms of like putting I mean the number one best thing you can do and anyone who's done any research about football knows this the best thing your defense can do is put pressure on the quarterback put yep. getting a quarterback out of a clean pocket getting him on the move or getting a hand in his face like the numbers just through and through and through will say that is the number one way to disrupt an opposing offense and you can either do that through having really good cornerbacks or having a really good pass rush so I think that defense definitely matters for like winning actual NFL football games but it for me it's just not like I don't go as far as Josh it's definitely something that I look at like if I if I was gonna straight up say on this podcast I don't think defenses matter in my performance at all one percent I would have had Julio Jones in cash games last week because he was he was absurdly low but I, I didn't because I don't I don't believe that to the highest possible degree that you know the the real warriors do yeah. And, and I think that's fair. Like, I think taking kind of a, a tempered view of it is the right approach. Like I, you know, I think Josh is really smart and I love Josh and we've talked a lot about this defenses thing, but I do disagree with him on it. Like I, I think defenses matter just less than people think. I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm middling, I'm middling this conversation very well. Like, I think Josh is more right than like everyone on Twitter that tells him like, oh, dude, you're an idiot. You live uh-huh. in Idaho. You can't play DFS. You're dumb. Like, I'm definitely more on his side than on those people's side. But I, I, the thing that I, the thing that I disagree with him about is that you do need to do some big predicting in game script. Like a a huge part of being successful in DFS NFL is predicting game script and defensive matchups do definitely impact game script. Yep, they do. Um, And that's part of how I project game script. Um, But, you know, again, it's like everything is its own factor. Defense is only one factor. And I think people do sometimes blow it out of proportion. You know, game script is super important. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's like probably like if you if you were successfully projecting game scripts every week, you're probably a winner. Absolutely. If you knew exactly the game script of a game, like you probably wouldn't lose a week all year. So I actually this is and this wasn't on our agenda, but I'm actually curious. Have you tried to adapt using either of your models to predict games against the spread or like, or like money lines for baseball. Like have you tried to adapt this stuff to sports betting at all, I actually know some people use your team totals from the bat to bet games. Yeah. So the bat projects full on game stuff, team totals, win percentage, all that kind of stuff. Tests I've run on it have come out, have come out, you know, really well. Um, I know people use it. I know people are successful with it. Um, I've started doing it a little bit now that gambling is legal where I live. Um, That's right. You're in Jersey. So you can just, you can just walk the, like you have the DK sports book. You're all in it. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I think, I think it's great. I think player props are awesome. Um, the, the football side, I don't have game projections yet. It's something 
I've been building. It's something I don't have completely done yet, but it is something I'm planning on having. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the future transitioning it. Like, and also I think something that like player props are like not bet by like actual, like big time sharps. Like it's just not so, the, the liquidity is low and they don't care. So like those are actually beatable. I think like if you had a pretty good projection system, I think you could beat those at like a pretty reasonable clip. Yeah. They're very beatable. I think. So do you, do you actually, do you use the DK sports book? Like, or, or have you been to one of the physical locations yet? Um, I haven't been to, I don't know if DK has a physical location, but I've been to a couple of sports books in New Jersey that are operated by other people. Yeah. There's, there's one just down the road for me that when it first opened, I was there a lot. Is it uh is it like, is it really seedy in there or is it like actually kind of cool? It's uh, I guess it wasn't as nice as I was kind of like hoping or expecting, but I don't know if maybe my sights were, or my expectations were just set too high, but like, you know, most of them have a pretty cool setup. You know, they have a bar, they have a bunch of TVs, they have, you know, places to, you know, chairs and lounges and like whatever. And so, uh, I don't know, I think it's pretty cool. And just in general, having it now is awesome. You know, you think back two years ago or three years ago, we weren't sure if DFS was going to survive. Yeah, we, were, we weren't sure. We weren't sure if DFS was going to be legal in two years. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's cool to be here. All right. Well, I think that uh, that is going to do it for us here on the show today. Let people know where they can find you uh, and also pump some of your media, uh, like your media. I know you do a Blitz podcast and I like uh, which shows are you on on RG right now? I actually have done very little uh, football shows right now. The schedules have just been so full, I guess. But uh, I am on RG shows occasionally whenever whenever they got a spot for me. Um, but mostly I'm just doing the blitz at Rotor Grinders in the marketplace. Um, I hang out in the chat room all the time and answer questions for people. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Derek Hardy. Boom. There we go. Everyone check him out. Check out the blitz on Rotor Grinders and the bat as well.